seated. Thank you for the good singing. We are in a study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and there are just so many great and glorious texts. We're going through it a little slowly. I hope that you'll uh, bear with me as every week I'm, I'm, I'm faced with. I, I just want to camp here on this one verse and uh, meditate on the riches that are there. In fact, this week we, we talk about the riches that are hidden in Christ, all the riches of, of wisdom and of knowledge to the full assurance of understanding. We are in Colossians chapter 2, and not just uh, going through the letter, but we are also considering what this has to imply for our lives and for a Christian worldview. Uh, Jesus has not come just to merely take a little part of our life on a Sunday morning. He has come to redeem all of our life and uh, to give us a, a reason and a purpose to live and to live abundantly forever. So, from Colossians uh, chapter uh, 1, I'll start with uh, verse 28. Um, actually, I'll, I'll, verse 27 for context, and I'll read a little past, but we're just going to really look at the first three verses of chapter 2. So, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, we begin for context. To them, that is the, uh, the saints, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full understanding, excuse me, the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I say this lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, and abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you, through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come again to this magnificent text that glorifies our Lord Jesus Christ and pray that we too, being knit together in love, may have encouraged hearts and attain to all those riches of the full understanding of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Jesus. Oh, how we long to have that as our present possession, for truly we are rich in him. May the joy of such riches, may the wonder and the glory of all that we have in Jesus be possessed 
by your saints. May we possess our possessions. That is our prayer as we make it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whether it's the opinions of friends or the lyrics of songs or articles in the newspaper or social media, the plot of a sitcom, our minds are constantly bombarded by a thousand voices every day. Each one is telling us how to think and therefore how to live. We are in the midst of a cacophony of many voices, but it seems that in all this talking, there is very little true wisdom and knowledge to be found, less and less. It's a confusing time. It's a confusing time, I think, especially to grow up. And my sympathy is with the younger generation here. One woman put it this way in her book, Finding God at Harvard. She wrote, students feel safer as doubters than believers and as perpetual seekers rather than eventual finders. I think that's interesting and well said in the light of so many voices all the time, all around us. Students feel safer as doubters than believers, as seekers, not finders. And it's hard to know what really is true anymore, if anything is true. Um, in one Harvard commencement address, she notes one graduate lamented in front of the whole, the whole uh, student body and their parents and friends that the freedom of our day is the freedom to devote ourselves to any values we please on the mere condition that we do not believe any of them to be true. Truth has become an uncomfortable word in our day. To say that you have the truth is practically to make an offensive statement, a microaggression that may trigger someone. Many people have stopped looking for the truth the truth that can give life meaning and purpose uh, to tell us why we are here and what we should be doing. They might believe, I suppose, in your truth or my truth, but many people in the generation that's rising have just given up on the truth. In this day of so many contradictory voices, people are understandingly afraid of falsehood, but there's an even greater danger than falsehood is to become so jaded that you can never actually find and believe the truth. But where can the truth be found? The Apostle Paul writes this letter with a great burden, a great burden upon his heart for you, the people of God, the burden that we would know in Jesus Christ all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, would you be wise? Would you have real knowledge? Well, such treasures and riches are reserved only for those with the love and a zeal who can find them in Christ. You've got to know Him. Verse 3, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is what I want to explain to you today, why he would write such a thing. Um, this time of year, we are what? reminded everywhere of, of Christ's birth, a story that is so charming and beautiful in its retelling. Uh, the Virgin Mary with child, angels appearing to shepherds, and so on. It, 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 it seems quaint. It seems lovely. And, and in these shallows, even little children can wade. But you must understand that 
that same event discloses a fact so wondrous, so astonishing, that for centuries the greatest minds in the church struggled to represent what happened in the most accurate form of words. That this little child lying in a manger who shares our full humanity, body and soul, is also God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. That's, of course, from the Nicene Creed. It took centuries for the church to, to reckon with this staggering fact that God has been made manifest in the flesh. Paul, in the previous chapter, explained it this way. By him, by Jesus, all things that were created, that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist or hold together. He sustains everything by his powerful word. And this is why he's the most important thing in your life and in your world, whether you know it or not. He's your maker. He holds your breath in his hands. You, like everything else, were made through him and for him. He sustains all things by his powerful word. He alone is the sun in our sky. To understand your life and existence at all, you must see everything as orbiting around him and his glory. Everything else I have to tell you about him, his humiliation, his suffering to save his people from their sins, his friendship, his unspeakable love, must begin with this, that he is, Colossians 1, 15, the image of the invisible God that now and forever shines among men. And this is what kindles the spark of love within us. When some measure of this greatness, of, of what has happened for, for you and me, begins to penetrate our thinking, and when we then bow in the depths of our souls before this majesty in, in wondering, give him glory, that the everlasting maker of heaven and earth has taken up our nature to save us from our sins. Only then have we begun to know him aright. He was born and laid in a, in a cattle shed, laid in a manger. He had a true human life in every respect. He dressed like any man. He ate and drank, worked and slept as you and I do. He laughed and cried and grew weary. And when the time came, he bled like any man. And he died like any man. But there was another side to this Jesus that was being revealed to the world. And again and again, when people were confronted with it, they were staggered. When the realization dawned on them, we read at one point, they were afraid and marveled and said to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the wave and they obey him. Or again, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Or again, 
For a good work we are not stoning you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. At one point, the disciples go up with Jesus upon a mountain, and they are shocked. As for that one brief moment, they see the glory of Jesus Christ shine forth as lightning. But, but friends, what's astonishing is not that Jesus should shine forth. When we understand who He is, it's no surprise at all that He would be so glorious. What is astonishing is that He should be so inglorious for the rest of His days. In poverty, with no reputation, a friend of harlots and the most disreputable sinners, beaten, crucified after a ministry of scarcely three years. Such was the earthly life of God incarnate. Is that not mind-blowing? Who is this Jesus? He's the one who called the universe into being. The one who walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. The one who talked with Abraham as a friend face to face. Whose wrath then fell upon Sodom. Who wrestled with Jacob until the break of day who appeared in a burning bush to Moses and led Israel out of captivity and so forth. He is the image of the invisible God. No one has seen God at any time. We read last week. But this only begotten in the bosom of the Father, he's revealed him. And Paul wants you not merely to believe certain truths about him, put those away in your mind, He wants you not merely to say certain prayers to him and recognize that he is who he is. He wants you to come to the full enjoyment of the untold riches that you have received in Jesus. You have them. You have the full assurance and joy of these things. That's why he's writing. He wants you to come to Jesus and find your untold riches in Him, and find that God is not some impersonal and distant God removed from our daily life and experience. For in Jesus, God is revealed in a way that we can understand as we've never understood before, in flesh and blood. Not merely the transcendent creator and judge of the nations, but the God who cares, who is personally involved, who has come to give His life that you may live forever. This is the one that we need, who will walk with us even through the valley of the shadow of death where no other companion can go and bring, to us, bring us to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So let your mind and heart absorb this great single fact, the greatest fact in all the earth. Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. And to find Him and to know Him must absolutely be unsearchable riches. And the key to all of life, all of meaning, all of knowledge and wisdom, the center of all things. And if you don't know him, you don't know anything as it truly is through him and for him. But if you know him, all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are yours both to discover and to enjoy. Now Paul writes this with a special concern, he says, for these Christians in Colossae and the nearby city Laodicea. 
We'll read much more about this next time, that uh, he's concerned that others don't deceive them with persuasive words. Verse, verse 4, or as the English Standard Version has it, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Things that, well, they sound good, but they are, in fact, verse 8, just vain philosophy, empty deceit, according to the tradition of men. Nothing to them. Paul writes at the beginning of this chapter, verse 1, he has a great conflict. That is, he strives, he has a struggle, a burden, that this church, in light of these things about Christ, enjoy three things specifically. That they have encouragement, brotherly love, and the full assurance of understanding. And I'd like to mention each of them briefly. Encouragement. I want you to know, he begins the chapter, what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged. I found this challenging. Um, Paul has a profound burden for the churches, which we should have also for the church, for each other, for ourselves. Christians need encouragement. It's not just that we should be happy in Christ, as we should be, but it's practically important, he says, because Paul wants them to stand fast in the truth. And Paul knows, as I'm sure many of you know, just how hard that is to do when you are discouraged. Paul isn't writing to them saying, now I want you to be encouraged. You go generate within yourselves all the encouragement you need and get back to me. No, this, this letter, of course, is written in part to encourage them. That's why he says he has this burden. He's writing to them, writing to the Laodiceans. He, 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 wants, them, he wants to tell them in a lovely way of Christ's great love for them. He wants to remind them of God's glorious purposes and promises. He tells them that he sees God at work in them. Like verse, verse 5 I read to you, Paul rejoices when he sees their good order and the steadfastness of their faith in Christ. It's not flattery. Uh, flattery is something that's all about us. Uh, flattery seeks to praise the creature. If you want to do that to me later, that would be just fine, but that's not encouragement. Christian encouragement praises God for what he does in and through people. I, I rejoice when I see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith. Um, that's what encouragement is. Sometimes that means pointing out God's work of creation. I, I'm just glad that God has made you so wonderfully, gifted you this way. Sometimes that means encouraging people to see God's work within them, of growing and maturing, sanctifying them, pointing out their progress in the Christian life. You've really grown in the Lord. I just rejoice to have your faith. I, I'm so thankful for your friendship in Christ that it means so much to me. Sometimes it's encouraging people in God's grace and love toward them to remind each other, as we must remind each other, that, that God has gloriously forgiven us and received us, redeemed us, and blessed us with peace. Sometimes it's reminding each other what God will do, that He one day will make all things new, wipe every tear from our eyes. Paul does all four of these things at various points in his letter. Why? Because, among other things, this is a key way to prepare Christians to stand against the discouraging assaults of this world 
to strengthen their hearts. And I say I found this a challenge because I think it's easy for us to neglect the importance of encouragement. Think, you know, we're okay, right? I'm okay, you're okay, how you doing? I'm rejoicing in the Lord. Well, that's good. I had to ask myself again, do I have this burden? Do you have this burden for yourself? Begin with yourself. Are you encouraged? Do you have people in your life that are encouraging you? Plenty that take us down. Do you have those that are raising you up? Are you seeking out these people, spending time with them, talking about the things of the Lord Jesus with them? This is what we need. And I ask you, do you have that burden to encourage others, as Paul did, to tell just how much you love them and God loves them and how thankful you are for them and to remind them of the truth. Fellow parents, it is so much easier for us to see and admonish our children for what they're doing wrong than to see and to make sure they're encouraged about all the ways that we notice God is wonderfully, lovingly at work in them. To see those glimmers of spiritual life and faith from their earliest time begin to shine forth, and we all need this encouragement in Christ. And we should share Paul's burden for ourselves and others. It's, it is a glorious thing that we have all the riches in Jesus, but it's easy to forget. Other things come in. We need to be encouraged. Second, he says, the second burden he has for them is brotherly love. He puts it in verse 2, that their hearts may be knit together in love. Paul is laboring, not just that he might personally give each person in the church the encouragement that they need in Christ, doing it all himself, but his great burden is to see them knit together into a Christian community that provides all the encouragement, all the support, all the strength that they will need to withstand the discouraging challenges they'll face. It's not enough for a church to have worship and education and programs Paul longs to see a church knit together in love. You, 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 knit together. A, a beautiful image, I think, no? To be knit together. A picture of people's lives becoming intertwined with one another stitch by stitch. Love. And each stitch... Each stitch a stitch of love, the result being a detailed, interlocking, interwoven unity. He loves this picture. He longs to see it. He has a burden to see their hearts knit together in love. That's the community we're called to be, not only because it encourages us, not only because it's beautiful and wonderful, because those things are true, but that's the kind of community that will keep us from being deluded by false but persuasive words. We need to see the true reality here of Christ's love, present and powerfully at work, right? I mean, this isn't just a theoretical gospel. You need to feel the love. And then you will be well grounded in Christ and well protected from any plausible falsehood. Human love is not enough. And every community outside of Christ has limits on how deeply and how strongly it can be knit together. But the church is bound together by the mighty love of Christ. We are being taught 
that love, each one of us, so that the church can be knit together in love and care for and support its people like no other community. I, I say I find this also a staggering truth how much I fall short. Is this your burden? To have the true palpable reality of Christ's love present and powerfully at work in the church, the body of Christ, each one. Uh, one preacher, Kent Hughes, comments, this is an opportunity, excuse me, this is an important message for an alive Christianity. No intellectual process will lead to a full grasp of the mystery of Christ unless it is accompanied by a love for him and for Christians that, you, that knits us, the church, together in love. We cannot pursue knowledge of God in willful, unloving isolation. Rejecting fellowship with others. Historically, some have tried and have suffered incomplete or even a distorted understanding. Complete understanding of the mystery comes in loving community. So this is the practical uh, burden he has. The strength that we need is not going to be found just in encouragement itself. It's not even found in community itself. It's found in Christ. That's what we need, but it's given and received through Christ's loving, encouraging body. The words that we speak, the ways that we care, the ways our hearts are knit together. Th this makes it real. And how thankful I, are, I am for those of you that I know put yourself out in love for others to make this a reality. We, we all need it. Paul has a burden. I have a burden. Your elders have a burden. We need to be knit together in love. And third and finally, Paul's specific burden for them in light of Christ and his riches is that they attain to the full assurance of understanding. The full assurance of understanding. Verse 2, attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding. Because those are riches to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, uh, this is both a comfort and a challenge to us. On the one hand, he, Paul says, you don't need to look anywhere else for wisdom or knowledge, but now that you have, it, have known Jesus. In other words, everything that, that you need, you have in him, and what can anyone else tell you or give you or offer you? You have it all in Jesus. However, we all are a long way from um, rejoicing in the riches of that wisdom, from gaining all the wisdom and knowledge to the full assurance of understanding that we need to have. And that's what we'll be, we'll be reading about more in this chapter. We'll see that in the, in the weeks to come, how Paul contrasts his teaching with the emptiness of what is falsely called wisdom and knowledge and so forth. So I, I won't elaborate on it today. You'll be Glad to know. But we must grasp this to the very bottom of our hearts and minds and lives that since the meaning of all things, since the true life and way of life, since the destiny of 
every human being, including you, since the hope of any glorious future and much more has been revealed to us only fully and finally in Jesus Christ, then we should have the riches of the full assurance of understanding in him. And that's a lifetime calling. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. So here we have, in Christ, the full treasure of wisdom and knowledge and everything else. It's in him. Practically, what do we need to enjoy it? Well, we need those three things that he says he has a burden for. That uh, uh, we be encouraged, that our hearts be knit together in love, and that we attain to the full assurance or the riches of the full assurance of understanding. That's what we need. Now, for the rest of the time, I'd like to us to consider, as we are doing in this series, what this means for our lives, for our Christian worldview, for understanding that, in fact, if in fact, all wisdom and all knowledge is hidden in Christ, what does this mean for the rest of our life? I mean, is this just an hour in our week? Is Jesus just one thing in our Facebook post that we say is important to us? How, how does this fit into our lives? Or how do our lives fit into this is a better question. And what does this mean for the rest of life? I mean, what about the people with whom we work or at school with every day? Don't other people know things? Isn't there knowledge outside of Christ? Some of you are in a community uh, of higher learning. We have three secular institutions of higher learning in this immediate area. Are they without wisdom and knowledge since it's all in Christ? How are we to understand that? So let's finish up by asking this big question once again. Now our, our country today is uh, something like, depending on the poll, something like 10% secular at this point in history. But secularism exerts a massive influence. Much of the 90% of our population is adopting a secular worldview. In other words, believing that God has no practical importance and may therefore be excluded from life and education and public discussion. You know, I mean, you can have a little religious part of your life, of course. No one's saying you can't. You can spend an hour a week at some service, fine. But for the rest of your life, forget God. Don't just pretend that God does not exist for the, for the other 23 hours plus six days of your life. Well, how's this working out? We have to admit that um, since the great movement to, toward the secularization of education and public life that had a major victory some 60 years ago, things have still worked all in all fairly well. I mean, this is a blessed nation in so many ways. Christians and non-Christians are, are generally able to agree about many things and share common ground. And everyone basically has agreed about right, right and wrong. Everyone has basically agreed about reason and truth. Everyone's basically agreed about the world and human nature. And, and that's no accident. I mean, everything was made by him and for him, we just read. And the Christian worldview has a very, very significant effect upon our American society from its history still to this day. Thank the Lord. But what we are seeing is that with, without this Christian worldview as a foundation, and especially with people more and more raised 
with no such foundation, think, things are beginning to wobble, if not fall apart. And it, it, it does start in education, but it ends up in society. And, and this is what we need to recognize is going on. Um, for example, professor and author Alan Bloom abundantly demonstrated in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, that the majority of colleges and universities in the West are now firmly committed to the notion that there is no truth and no right and no wrong. That universities now in their official documents are saying such things. Well, the university says for its own part, we don't deal in values so much as we deal in facts. But facts aren't enough. One, one major study published in the Chronicle of Higher Education found that 84% of business students in America report one or more incidents of serious cheating in the past year compared to 72% of engineering students and 66% of all students. Hmm. Other researchers more recently have reported this. We have found that graduate students in general are cheating. <laughs> as, as a former graduate student here at VT, right? I, I can tell you, cheating at an alarming rate, we read. And the business school students are cheating even more than others. Graduate students, okay? To, to us, he writes, this means that business school faculty and administrators must do something. I mean, businesses are expected to create strong ethical cultures and monitor employee conduct and create programs and processes and reporting systems that support compliance with laws and regulations. At minimum, business schools should be attempting to do the same thing. So we have this, we have this culture now <laughs> that's right, right, right from how we're training up people that, that says, you know, honesty is not really practically important or, you know, may, maybe, maybe later when you get out of here, but not, not right here. And, um, and don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that people can't be moral without God. The question is whether on the basis of the empty godless philosophy, there is any reason or grounding for that morality, anything that has cash value in the world. You know, Chesterton said, put it this way, he says, you know, you go to one meeting and uh, it, it, they're, they're up in arms because men are being treated like animals. And you go to another meeting and they say that, you know, men basically are animals. And the grounding for our way of life that we have taken for granted in this country for a long time is, 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 is showing signs of weakness. Why should people not get away with things? One of the most notable atheist writers today, Professor Steven Pinker writes, quote, truth, love, right and wrong are not real things. They're simply what human beings feel because the meat in their heads produces such feelings. There is no truth 
and falsehood in objective reality, just feelings produced by the brain. Love, right and wrong, all this is simply a mindless chemical biological process, nothing more. Cited in the book, How the Mind Works. Uh, when I was a PhD student here at Virginia Tech, I, I decided that uh, I'd go to this uh, ethics colloquium they had for the graduate school. Uh, it was at the GLC, the Graduate Life Center. I thought it was gonna be in the really big room, right? Uh, but when I had the number, I walked past it, and it was, it was in one of the smaller conference rooms. And uh, I had a little trouble parking, so I arrived a minute late, and I, I kind of slipped in the door, and I realized I was the only student there <laughs> from the whole graduate school. It was not a required thing. I was the only one there. For the first half an hour, I was the only one there. Half an hour later, another non-traditional student uh, also joined me. Okay. Um, <laughs> So, so there's, uh, you know, there's all the, uh, all these important, important people from the graduate school, and the ombudsman is there, and, and she says, well, uh, well, since, you know, since we're, we're prepared for a, for a presentation, but it's just you and, you and us here, why don't we just have a conversation? I said, great. Okay. So uh, they started writing on ethics. It was an, it was an ethics colloquium. So um, I said, now I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I have a, a very good friend who's a missionary in India. Uh, he's, uh, he's had trouble get, getting a, uh, a, a phone line. He finally got it, but, but you know, for, for the better part of a year, he had to go back to the office, back to the office, back to the office, because basically they want a bribe. I mean, that's the way things work in India. That especially if, especially if you're a Western, especially if you're American, um, you're not going to get service unless you have money. Greasing the palm of the guy behind the desk. That's the way, that's the, way the world works in much of the world today. So I say, what's wrong with that? And uh, they said, that's a good question. Is there anything wrong with that? I said, oh. All right, I wasn't expecting that response. Because <laughs> um, I realized I have a reason. But what reason can they give? I mean, if that's the way they do it, if that's their society, if those are their values, you, you, you see, you can still have a bunch of facts without Jesus, but you don't know anything as it truly is, and you don't know the purpose of anything, and you begin to put life together, and you realize that all wisdom and all knowledge, it, it's in Jesus, and without Jesus, you can't do it. You say, well, what, wait a minute, what about the Muslim world? Right. Um, what, what, what about uh, what about the way that they're doing it in China and North Korea, where they where they say, okay, this is our this is our national commitment here, right? Strong, a strong national commitment. Okay, well, you know, we had this Declaration of Human Rights after World War II. Let's all agree on human rights. We won't specify the purpose. We'll just try to agree that there are human rights. Okay, we'll have no ground for them. We'll just say that they are, right? The communist countries said, forget that. The Islamic countries said, okay, we agree, since we're under Western protectorates right now. But as soon as they got their independence, they said, no, we have our own version. Based on our commitments in the Quran. And our commitments are definitely not the same as your commitments. And our rights are not the same as your rights, as you might know. So what I'm saying is, we have been in a fool's paradise, trying to live as a society, as though there were no reason. 
bestow wisdom and knowledge at the foundation. And we are enjoying the borrowed capital from previous generations, but it's starting to run out. The secular university has by definition committed itself to the view that there are no transcendent values, only values of principles of community. Taking away the grounding for freedom, truth, responsibility, purpose, evil, equality, welfare, happiness, hope, courage, humility, thankfulness, beauty, human nature, human rights, and a bunch of other things. Because those are ours. And what's going to happen when their view becomes the dominant worldview? What happens when people raised in that start to live like that? That is the question you see. You see the cash value of what I'm telling you. This is not just pie in the sky, religious thought. This is as real as it gets. In conclusion, I'd like to remind you of a very interesting interview I told you about uh, a year ago with two students at Oxford University who were asked about their purpose in life. The first to answer was a Christian young woman. She gave a touching answer about the joy of knowing God and what it's meant for her life and her choices and her direction and her studies. And she could have gone on for an hour, I think, about how much is meant to her and her academic path and to know true meaning and purpose and God's fellowship and love and strengthening and the hope and joy of living in Christ. But then she made this interesting comment at the end. She said, you know, I thought when I got here to Oxford, that people would talk about the great and important questions like this. But they talk about it much less than when I was a schoolgirl. They just keep you busy all the time, she said. The interviewer then asked the next girl, uh, the girl who was next to her, and, and what about you? Well, she said she hadn't really thought about it. Um, she was an agnostic, though, and she didn't really think that there was a purpose in life. Well, asked then what she, what she wanted in life. Well, she said that she didn't really have a goal so much as she, as she wanted to have stories to tell. And to my mind, it's such an amazing contrast. The point is, at the world's preeminent institutions of the humanities, it is so much easier not to think about it, not to discuss it, just to stay busy. Does that resonate with some of you students? Easier to remain a perpetual seeker than a joyful finder. Paul has a burden, that you know the riches of the treasures that are in Jesus Christ, that you experience it in a, in a loving context of community where your hearts are knit to the full assurance of understanding, and that to know these things in life, we must begin with Emmanuel, God who is with us, and to find him and to know him must absolutely be unsearchable riches, the key to all life, all truth, all meaning, all knowledge, all wisdom and understanding. Those magi, they were wise men indeed. And they show us the way to true wisdom because they came from the ends of the earth and found it in Christ. Let us pray. Oh, our Lord Jesus, you have become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. How we praise, bless, and adore you. From cradle to cross, from resurrection to return, from wedding feast to eternal bliss, you alone are worthy of all things that we are and have and do. 
We pray that you would give us some glimpse and grasp of the vast riches that are ours in you. How many wise men and righteous men in the past longed to hear what we hear and did not hear it. In a world of gray, we pray that the bright, brilliant truth that you have for us and for our lives and salvation may shine forth all wisdom, all knowledge, confound darkness with light, overcome evil with good. Send us again to your word that we might learn the truth as it is in Jesus and apply it and find our lives budding and blossoming forth in glory. To know you is to live. And so we thank you for life, the life that is given in the flesh of Jesus, the life that he himself has.